Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant and health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us from the Chicago area will be Dr. Mary King Kirkhoff, an expert in autism, to talk about children with conditions on that spectrum and what can be done to help them. Andrew, why should our listeners be interested in the topic of autism? I think everybody is. You know, I think you should be interested in it because somebody you probably know and love has autism. Or if, if not, someone you interact with or work with, or at least your kids' friends, if autism has not touched your life in a personal way, you are probably in the minority with autism becoming so much more common. I was so excited to hear that Mary was willing to, to do a show yes. on this to help educate the rest of us about what we need to know. Well, she is like, what is it here? She's quadruple board certified. I mean, Really? Really? Quadruple? <laughs> just, just quit it. Quit overachieving, Mary. And I'm glad she's not on to hear this right now. She'd probably be blushing. So one thing that you're really excited about that happened just within a week of recording this is the CDC and the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with new guidelines regarding milestones, which relates to the topic of autism. So first, how does it relate to the topic of autism? And then what is this new exciting thing that influences how you take care of your youngest patients? Yeah, for sure. Usually autism, one of the big challenges is establishing a diagnosis. Uh, that's a big inflection point in the treatment of autism and even just getting answers and having a game plan moving forward. And usually the one of the main things that key us up to that or start that process is when that patient is struggling with certain milestones. And many, many of our listeners who are parents or grandparents will recognize milestones as being something that's usually asked at the well-child visits. Sometimes people ask me, do I even need to come? The kid's always normal. Well, that's how it's supposed to be. That's <laughs> ideal. But as a matter of fact, there's times when many kids are not normal. And, and sometimes many kids continue struggling in different ways. And it's only by identifying them through these milestones that we can really catch it early and have a hope of getting better results. So how would you explain to the audience, you know, the concept of milestones in terms of the bell-shaped curve? Right. Yeah. And this is this is how it kind of made news this week that I was very excited about. Like everybody, you know, normal is not a specific data point. It's a range. And um, kind of on the personal side, I've got seven kids and all <laughs> of my kids, for the most part, we're about two months late in every single milestone. <laughs> and uh, so I'm totally familiar with the bell-shaped curve. That's how God made Malali kids. I understand that. <laughs> but it's it's my, <laughs> my my dear wife, Veronica, at times she'd be like, oh, we've got to work with them on this. Why aren't they meeting this? And, and you know, Because they're like dad, that's why. Because that's dad's half. <laughs> but it's, it's challenging for parents. Well, okay, they didn't meet them. And you said, it's okay. Who cares? Well, all of the milestones up until really the last couple of weeks, I'd say, have always been at about the mean or the median, somewhere around the 50th percentile, so that at any given time, about half the kids are meeting those milestones. That means the other half are not. That's the half where I live, and um, <laughs> it's not a bad thing. You're still in the bell-shaped curve. You're still normal. But the challenge was is that so many primary care providers were taking the milestones a little bit too lightly because they only see half the kids meet them. Well, some wise pediatricians figured that out. And as of this last week, the American Academy of Pediatrics have changed the milestones so that now going forward, we're aiming for the 75th percentile so that all of the milestones listed, we can expect 75% of kids to meet those milestones by that age. So really we're aiming for the 25th percentile of we're which 75% will be beyond. That's right. We're trying to catch the 25% of really kind of outliers to key us up. Do we need to look further? Is there something else going on? And on, on kind of the patient side and on my side, looking at all the different milestones, and many of them are ones you'd recognized, but they're all pushed down one well-child visit. Oh, and give us some examples. 
Yeah, you know, one of them that's always been a bee in my bonnet are the kids rolling over at four months. And <laughs> so many people lose sleep that their kids are not rolling over or traditionally sitting up at six months with something you'd expect. Loads of kids don't sit up at six months. And so I always found myself reassuring them. Well, now in the new milestones, kids are expected to roll from their belly to their back at six months rather than four months, which it was previously. And for sitting up, that used to be six months. Now we expect kids to be able to do that by nine months. And there's analogies as well in the language and the other milestones that we see. Many things got moved down one visit. So now we can really expect most kids to meet the milestones. So it sounds like this was an, an anxiety reduction program for parents on behalf of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Oh, yeah. I think it was a brilliant move. Why haven't they thought of this before? It's going to make my life easier because even just trying to reassure parents that it's okay, we'll just keep an eye on this. It's it's hard for them sometimes to say, are you sure? You know, But hopefully this will help us fine tune and really identify the kids who need more help earlier so that when somebody is missing milestones, either multiple or several visits in a row, then we can be very confident saying, okay, now we have somebody who really would benefit from extra support. I, I read that there is a lot of evidence for the motor you know, the movement and language milestones, but not as much for the cognitive or thinking one and the social interaction milestones. Have they added milestones in those arenas? They have. They've added and changed, and each each age is different. So they've actually even added milestones for 15 months, which is a traditional well-child check, and 30 months, which frequently is not a, a well-child check, but these were kind of in-between ones. So before we had one year and 18 month milestones. Now we have one year, 15 months and 18 months. So they've gotten more precise as well. And what do you think about parents just finding these milestone lists and checking them themselves with their children? I would totally support it because that that's gonna even help you when you come in for your wellness exam and you're being asked these or you're doing a checklist type of thing. You can readily identify, oh, I've already done this, I've already done that. And actually, the, the CDC, I haven't quite vetted this yet, but they're rolling out an app, a phone app, to go through the milestones so that you can kind of keep an eye on it at home on your own, which I think is a great idea if it, if it works well. How beautiful is that? Well, before we get to our expert, Mary, we're going to pose our medical trivia question of the day, and the category is autism in the rich and famous. All yeah. right. So the question, which of the following individuals has not publicly revealed that they have an autism spectrum disorder. Publicly revealed, no HIPAA involved here. A, the actress Daryl Hannah. B, the actor Anthony Hopkins. C, the movie director Tim Burton. D, the comedian Jerry Seinfeld. Or E, the entrepreneur Elon Musk. We'll be back with the answer toward the end of the show. But before that, we'll have Mary Keen Kirkhoff, Autism Here on Dr. Doctor. We're back with our special guest, Mary Keen Kirchhoff. Mary's a pediatrician and physiatrist at Mary and Joy Rehab Hospital and Clinics in Wheaton, Illinois, where she's been for over 30 years. She got her bachelor's degree and MD at Northwestern. In Seattle, she did her residency in physical medicine and rehabilitation. And she also did a pediatrics residency Loyola Stritch Medical Center near Chicago. She's board certified in four things, physical medicine and rehab, pediatrics, neurodevelopmental pediatrics, and pediatric rehab. She's been married for 33 years to Chuck. They have five adult sons. And in the CMA, she's been president of the Catholic Physicians Guild of Chicago for 10 years, a regional representative for six years, and a member of the CMA board for the last two years. Mary, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor to be here. <laughs> You're so good. Mary, what got you interested in caring for kids with disorders of the brain and spinal cord? Believe it or not, Catholic school, seventh grade teacher, invited many of us in my class to volunteer at a nursing home across the street from my school where they had young adults with disabilities. Wow. And seventh that's grade. what started it, seventh grade, yep. And, and what happened when you were over there? What did you see? What did you experience? Well, there were 
individuals with varying diagnosis, at the time I didn't know what they were, but now I can tell you that there were individuals with muscular dystrophy, traumatic brain injuries, spinal cord injury, severe quadriplegic cerebral palsy. No, I didn't know any of those things back then. I was just a friend to these individuals who happened to live across the street from my school. Now, I'm guessing it didn't grip all of your classmates the same way as you. Why do you think you had a different experience? I am not sure. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if anybody else in my class ended up going into medicine or not, because the next year I moved from Minnesota, where I was growing up, to Chicago. So I, I don't know what happened to my classmates. I'm hoping some of them were similarly stimulated. <laughs> well, Mary, in regard to autism in particular, maybe we can start with just a diagnosis. I think it gets thrown around a lot. What actually is autism? Autism is a neurobehavioral disorder. That means that it's diagnosed on the basis of what we observe in behavior. And it's a result of some differences in the brain, how the brain develops and how the brain works. Um, there are two groups of criteria that are necessary for a diagnosis of autism. Number one is differences in how a person with autism relates with others and communicates with the others. With others. And the other is uh, restricted interest in repetitive behaviors. Both sets of criteria are necessary uh, for a diagnosis of autism. And there are strict descriptions in the guidebook, the DSM-5, which outlines what these criteria are. So give us an example, you know, in relating with others. I mean, the common thing I think of is they tend not to make eye contact. What are some other things? Some other things are... Um, Wanting to be alone, for example, preferring to be alone rather than interacting with others. Perhaps playing in the corner when there's a group of other kids running around. Um, not understanding uh, or using the wrong pronouns. So not really understanding what another person is. And, and not misunderstanding the, those sorts of relationships. Those are some examples. And then repetitive behaviors, the other group. Well, running back and forth, pacing, staring at a fan, um, looking at your hand and, and wiggling the fingers, looking at things sideways rather than straight ahead. There, are, Every child I've seen has a slightly different collection of repetitive behaviors, and they change over time. Now, a term that I used to hear frequently was the term Asperger syndrome for symptoms that looked like a form of autism, but that term is no longer used, right? What is the current terminology to discuss the different types of autism? Right now, instead of using terms of for like Asperger's for an individual who has normal cognition, we would usually use level one autism. Level one autism does not require a lot of supports. Level two autism requires some supports and level three, a lot of supports for daily function. And is that scored out of three? Yes. Okay. And so how do these look different? When we see a, a, a person with level one, two or three, what would we notice differently? You may not notice anything about a person with level one um, and until you got to know them really well and spent a lot of time with them. You might see some minor minor symptoms. And level one is what was used to be called Asperger's. Is that right? Yes. And so when you say with normal cognition, I don't remember cognition being one of those two main categories. So it must be commonly found in autism that people don't have a normal level of ability to think. Is that right? Right. About a third are classified as intellectually disabled. So does that mean two thirds are in level one? No, that means two-thirds do not qualify as intellectually disabled. Their IQ is good. Oh, two-thirds are good. Two-thirds are good. So two, th But they're not all level one. So they're some, not all level one. So you can have good cognition and still be level two or three. 
Yes, and that, and that can be a result of a, other associated impairments, for example, ADHD, uh, for example, anxiety. About a, a third of youngsters with autism have clinically significant anxiety, and a third have clinically significant ADHD, um, and they can have both. Got it. My goodness. How, how do you feather all that out? Take time. <laughs> it takes a team. It takes a team. Okay. Yep. Um, yeah, there's no way to care for an individual with autism without a team. Families need support. So we think of autism as primarily a behavioral or a mental related condition. Are there associated physical problems? Very commonly, there are physical problems. For ex one common example is toe walking. Hmm. Talk very, about that. Well, uh, many children who end up with a diagnosis of autism toe walk from early in life and they continue toe walking. And it is thought to be one manifestation of sensory processing difficulties. When you walk on your toes, your center of gravity changes a little bit more than if you walk heel toe. Um, but that's just a hypothesis. Many individuals with autism are very picky about what they eat because they can't tolerate different textures in their mouths or a combination of textures or flavors. Some really want intense flavors. Others want very mild or no flavors. Ah. Some are very picky about uh, chunky <laughs> things. Um, anyhow, it's so these these are some of the physical manifestations. You had mentioned Mary about differences in their brains as opposed to people without autism. What what is different about the brain of someone with autism? That's an excellent question. They have done studies with uh, functional MRI and found out that individuals with autism often have too many local connections and not enough of the big connections, for example, going from the frontal lobe to the occipital lobe, their frontal lobe to the parietal lobe, parietal lobe going to the other side of the parietal lobe. They'll have lots of little connections in the parietal lobe, but not the big connections that are necessary for learning, processing, associating experiences and events of life and um, what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what you're feeling, et cetera. So parts of the brain are even isolated from themselves within the person. Yes. Amazing. And is it right to assume also that might even go left-right across the corpus callosum that connects the right hemisphere from the left? Yes. Yes, that is true. Fascinating. Because I've, you know, one of our previous guests, Kevin Majors, has got me interested in learning more about left brain, right brain, the master and his emissary. And it's just fascinating reading through there. They suggest that patients with autism are more likely to live life trying to see it through more the left hemisphere, things in pieces, instead of the right hemisphere, big picture. Yes. Th that, that makes is, sense? Yes, it does make sense. It certainly does. I haven't heard it expressed that way, but I'm. thank you. I got to go. I, I have been listening to Dr. Major's talk. Yeah. Well, the books more. are by Ian McGilchrist. And his latest two-volume tome, which I got for Christmas, is called The Matter with Things. It's it's incredible. You would, you would eat it up. You could explain it to me. So, Mary, <laughs> how common is autism? It is now somewhere between 150 and 160 or 70 youngsters, more common in boys than girls. So almost 2%. Almost 2%, whereas 40 years ago when I started – it was three per thousand, identified three per thousand. So it has dramatically increased in frequency and or recognition. Yeah, what's what's the story there? That's like the million dollar question, right? What's it sure that? is. Well, I went to medical school a long time ago, and I don't think I had one lecture in medical school on autism, and I only had one lecture in my pediatric residency on autism. Wow. She was. So I've had to do, I've had to learn on my own on my own or with CME, you know. Uh, and uh, so there are many pediatricians out there who have not had a lot of training, which means that over the, un until recently, 
Many children may not have been referred as early as we would have liked. So is, is autism present at birth, before birth, or does it develop after? Or do we know? That's an excellent question. I don't think we know for sure, but it is presumed to be there present at birth, at least in some cases, because some children can be identified before age one. If videos of children before age one shown to an expert, they can often identify differences in eye contact, differences in um, interest of the child in a person's face or some of those restricted repetitive behaviors can be present even under age one. Mary, who, who seems to be at the greatest risk for autism? Or what are some of the latest theories about the actual cause of autism or causes? Well, it is increasingly recognized that there is a major genetic component. Part of that genetic component is likely a predisposition that is somehow turned on by some sort of environmental influence. Um, epigenes is what I'm talking about. Yes. Well, explain to our listeners what uh, epigenetic factors are. An epigenetic factor is an, an environmental exposure that somehow is able to turn a gene on or off. And that particular gene that they turn on or off is responsible for a cascade of other events that, for example, could lead to autism. And any ideas what pregnant moms might avoid or do that could help reduce risk of autism? Alcohol. Ah, tell us. Tell us more about that story. Alcohol is toxic to developing brains. There's no such thing as a safe dose of alcohol in a pregnant woman. The brain is so rapidly developing throughout pregnancy, even before a woman knows she's pregnant, the neural tube and the foundation of the brain is already there. The, another thing is, is avoiding things like uh, mercury from bottom feeders. Even tuna should be limited by Intake of tuna should be limited in pregnant women. And what other kinds of things like tuna? I mean, I think of carp, but or catfish. <laughs> what else would be a bottom feeder? Oh goodness, let me think. I guess shark is one. I don't know. Some of the bigger yeah. fish too. The right? bigger, yeah, the bigger fish, the fish that eat other fish. Are, are there any things after the child is born that should be avoided that might exacerbate or even? bring on, you know, trigger uh, predisposition for autism? Well, that's an interesting question. I've never thought of it exactly like that. But um, one factor that probably should be avoided is one thing that hasn't been able to be avoided for a lot of the last two years, and that is isolation. Not having kids be around other kids having children be around other adults, just the same adults all the time, um, not having the same sorts of opportunities to go out in the playground, to go to the library, to go to the grocery store, all of those opportunities for the brain to experience something new ah. have been limited. So that brings up an interesting question, Mary. Is there any evidence, therefore, that being born into a larger family or being part of a multiple birth makes it less likely that you would have autism because you'd presumably have more in-home stimulation? Not that I've encountered. Not that I've encountered. But that I wouldn't think, be a bad thing for these it kids. Would definitely not. It's a good thing for a child who has autism to be in a large family. Every child's a blessing. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we know it here on this show? So you mentioned before about neural tube defects, about alcohol. A question I had was about one of our favorite doctors, may his cause for canonization proceed, Dr. Jerome Lejeune. He's the one that identified that folic acid in pregnancy could help reduce neural tube defects. Do we know of anything a woman could do? She can avoid alcohol, but a woman could do during pregnancy that might, might reduce the risk of autism in a child. Taking a multivitamin. There have been several studies that show that women who routinely take a prenatal vitamin 
are, are less likely to have a child with autism. Excellent. So at the beginning of the show, Andrew brought up the great topic of milestones. So using those, how early can autism be diagnosed? The earliest would be about age one. More typically, it would be diagnosed around age two. If a family has another child with autism, they'll, they'll recognize the signs even at age, at age one. And so what, what should parents recognize and bring to the attention of their doctors? Number one would be lack of interest in their face and lack of interest in interacting with sounds, with activities, copying what mom, mom does, imitating faces, those sorts of things would probably be the very first sign. And then as we approach age two, it's language, speech and language delays. And there's a lot of things that can cause language delays, right? Yep. The first one we worry about is hearing impairment. Everybody's, every child is language delayed has to have their hearing tested quickly, urgently. <laughs> one, one of the things that I don't know if it's a stereotype, so to speak, but it, it's frequently said that kids with autism often have high levels of talent in specific areas and then deficits in others. Is that true? There's a minority of individuals who have unique and special skills. It's not most of them. For example, I have one patient who, if you told them your birth date, he could tell you what day you were born on, what day of the week. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad you can't make a living with that skill. Well, that's right. That's right. <laughs> But hyperlexia, unusual interest in letters and numbers, can also be an early sign of autism. Hyperlexia, like that term. So it, how small a minority is that? I mean, that was the thing when they used to use the term Asperger's that always came to mind. Oh, they've got some special skill. But small minority? Small minority. I can only think of two or three patients in my practice that qualify as having a, a really um, outstanding, unusual, impossible to understand skill. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Well, and on that note, we're going to take a break and then come back and look at what are some of the things that can make a difference in these patients. And so we'll be back after the break here with Mary King Kirchhoff on Dr. Doctor. And we are back with Dr. Doctor. And today we are talking about autism. So Mary, what, what types of treatments, we've talked about the diagnosis of autism a little bit, what types of treatment, especially early interventions, can make the biggest difference in the lives of these patients? Uh, the, the different treatments that are life-changing, especially are speech therapy, um, and that should be started right away as soon as uh, the diagnosis of autism is suspected. Um, and even if they seem to have a good number of words, speech therapy can be important because communication is not just words. Communication includes body language, facial expressions, um, using them as well as recognizing them. Those are the pragmatics of language. Um, and really smart youngsters with autism may be perfect with language, but struggle with those other um, aspects of communication. And what besides speech? Occupational therapy is important to assist with problems such as sensory processing issues, trouble with textures and eating, uh, troubles with different fabrics um, on, on the skin, uh, trouble with tolerating loud noises um, or, or trouble being fixated on a fan or other moving objects. So how do you get past, because I'm familiar with this texture thing, either in your mouth, against your skin. How, can you get past that if you have autism? That's the expertise of an occupational therapist. Um, and they, they would prescribe a program that would probably include um, gently rubbing a youngster with different types of fabric to help them just get accommodated to it over time. 
That's an example. Similarly with different foods, you start out with no additional texture, but then you might add just a tiny little bit of, of texture to a puree and then gradually, gradually, gradu gradually increase the sizes of the lumps <laughs> in the puree um, to allow uh, improved tolerance. ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis, is critically important. It is a technique that was described and um, shown to be effective way back in the 1960s by Dr. Lovas. It used to be called Lovas treatment, but now it's known as ABA. Um, and it there are hundreds and hundreds of studies that document that applied behavior analysis can be very effective in teaching a child with autism and or intellectual disabilities, even complicated a series of, of activities. They're just an example. Going to the bathroom, we think of as being really simple, but for a little child who's two or three who can't stand the sound of the hand dryers or can't stand the sound of the toilets or whatever, there's it, it's a multi-step procedure that we don't think anything of. But if a child has a lot of sensory problems, sensory processing issues, an ABA therapist can break this big, important series of steps down into little steps so that a child can acquire this skill and then generalize it in other, other places. Mary, one of the things that's kind of challenging, I think, for a lot of families is access to some of these services. Is that something that you've seen getting better for people with insurance coverage and whatnot? Or are there any tricks that people should be aware of to help facilitate that? Well, I can only speak for the state of Illinois, and things have gotten better here. The In the state of Illinois, about 15 years ago, the, our legislator legislators passed a law stating that insurance companies have to pay for ABA unless they were self-insured and really small. But guess what? They did not make that rule apply to public aid. So it excluded, oh, wow. excluded 30% or more <laughs> of, of children with autism. They've only recently, within the last year, changed that. Mary, you were telling us a story off air for one of your young patients, um, and this was in the social realm of, of something very simple made a big difference. Sure. Tell our listeners. Okay, I saw a little girl um, right in the middle of the pandemic um, when schools were just starting to reopen. And uh, this little girl had very severe signs of autism, did not want to interact with me or siblings, um, had very minimal language. But a month after she went to in-person school, her symptoms almost totally resolved. Just from social interaction. Just from having those opportunities to interact with other children in a supportive, fun environment. Well, and it, it kind of goes without saying, too, if she didn't have that opportunity to get that stimulation, what, what might things be like differently? You know, a, a common question that, that I hear would be as to the prognosis or the trajectory that an autistic patient might, might have. Can you describe that? Or are there multiple trajectories? Yeah, there are multiple trajectories, and I'm going to start with the most difficult one. Um, there are cases of syndromic autism, where there's a chromosomal anomaly responsible. Um, even tri children with trisomy 21 can have autism, and they probably have a higher risk of autism than some other um, genetic disorders. Um, but if if a child has a genetic disorder, they're more likely to have an intellectual disability, which means that they're going to be challenged more when we're trying to teach them new things. So individuals who have syndromic autism have a less optimistic trajectory. 
on the other end, uh, children who have normal language, there's a, a 10% risk of, if they really have normal language, they may outgrow the diagnosis. And can you teach normal language? In other words, we had an episode where we talked about trisomy 21 outcomes in patients, sometimes depending on the expectations of the parents with those children. Is there any effect like that present in patients with autism? Absolutely, there is. Um, if, if parents have high expectations, if parents advocate effectively uh, for their child at school and in the community, but especially school, I mean, times with the insurance companies, they have to hassle the insurance companies <laughs> as well. Um, it can make a, a very big difference in, in, uh, in outcomes. So, so they're not, so patients with autism are not doomed to be at a fixed level of skills. Correct. Even a child who has severe intellectual disability uh, with a, an attentive, dedicated parent, I have seen remarkable improvements. Now, not, not to normal, but certainly improvements in language and communication um, and behavior that I would not have expected without the parental involvement um, and support. So can most kids with autism when they grow up hold a job or if they're level one or even two go to college if they want to level one i'll say most of them can level two is more of a challenge it depends on associated um, impairments mary what what level of insight do patients with autism have about their disorder it varies with the severity of autism there are some individuals um, who have very good insight. And then there are others who have none whatsoever. Um, if they don't have insight, then they're certainly not a level one. Okay. So by definition, would somebody with level one have insight? Yes. How about empathy? I think I have seen empathy be taught by parents and therapists. Not always, it doesn't always work. But again, with the level one, um, I have seen beautiful changes over time. By definition, would somebody starting out at a young age with level one lack empathy? They may struggle with it. Okay. They may not show it routinely. They may show it only in certain circumstances. But again, if they grow up in an environment where empathy is modeled, they have a much better opportunity than if it were not. So what are some of the best advice you can give to parents of children with autism, especially those who are recently diagnosed? Uh, number one, do not give up hope. God is good and his plan is always perfect. We may not see it at this side of of heaven, but his plan is always perfect. Uh, number two, every child is a tremendous blessing and the challenges that a, a child with autism can bring to a family uh, can lead to beautiful growth within the family. I have been doing this long enough uh, to get to know siblings who choose careers in speech therapy, for example. Oh, wow. Or special education because of growing up with a child who has special needs. So um, individual uh, with autism can bring out uh, generosity and talents of other people. You know, I know an example um, here where I am, there's a homeschool theater group and there were two siblings, a very outgrowing younger brother whose older brother uh, is on, has a diagnosis on the spectrum and his goal has always been to get his older brother to laugh and he wants to now be a pediatrician oh. so i have seen that myself and it's a beautiful thing it is absolutely beautiful it's absolutely beautiful god's plan is always perfect and where should parents go to get the best help they can get for their children with autism well um there are a few organizations that specialize in it the one that i like best 
based based on my experience is Autism Speaks. It's a national organization with many state chapters. Um, but you also can go to the NIH. They have pages, um, sections for regular people, not just doctors. And what's the name of the organization with chapters? Autism Speaks. Autism, Autism Speaks. Speaks. Very good. And Mary, if we're not comfortable or not sure, our listener is not sure how to react to somebody they see with autism, a child or an adult, what advice can you, you give us? Uh, number one, move and talk slowly. Give the individual with autism a little bit of extra time to process what you're saying. And if you're a healthcare professional, and you need to do something with or for the child with autism, explain slowly what you need to do before you do it and wait for the child or adult to demonstrate that they're ready for you to do what you need to do. Mary, this whole coronavirus pandemic that we've all been living through and surviving through what are some of the effects that you've seen on your patients? All bad? Any good? Well, on, on children and families um, caring for children with autism, it has been particularly difficult. Um, isolation um, has been imposed in dimensions that I don't think any of us have experienced before. Um, and especially for children who have difficulties understanding relationships, have difficulty initiating uh, an interaction, not having opportunities and multiple opportunities with many individuals over time is certainly uh, contributing to delays in development of those skills. So getting back to normal would be great for all these patients. Absolutely. And not using a mask. Um, <laughs> not using a mask. Um, a mask makes it hard to understand what other people are saying. It makes it hard for other people to understand what one is saying, especially if there's any uh, trouble with articulation. And facial expression. It's not just our eyes. And individuals with autism tend to rely looking at the mouth more than the eyes. So covering up the mouth is certainly another dimension of problems in, uh, with COVID and children with autism. What brings you joy in treating these patients? They almost always get better. And Ooh. watching families grow, um, watching parents appreciate even little things is is really fun. Even children who are severely impaired show some improvement with love and attention. Mary, and you had another story you wanted to share about us about a young patient that brought you some joy recently. Yes, a, a little boy who had been in special education starting at age three, and at age five was still not talking, was not potty trained, couldn't sit still, was first diagnosed with ADHD and then with autism. And with appropriate treatments of his ADHD and autism is now in a regular classroom. Were the parents ecstatic? Yeah, they are ecstatic, <laughs> for sure, for sure. Mary, how, how does your faith influence the way you care for these patients? I guess the, the key thing is I've learned to trust God, and I hope that that shows and uh, spreads to the families. I've learned I can trust him. Mary, if listeners could only remember one thing from this show about autism, what do you hope it is? God is good and his plan is always perfect. <laughs> You're just right to the point, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> and you can use it in other areas of your life too, right? Yes, that's right. <laughs>
right. I, I was going to ask just one more time that organization you mentioned, Autism Speaks. Um, what other final words or resources would you like to leave with our listeners? Be very, very careful about using the internet. There's lots and lots of misinformation out there. So it's important to go to websites that are reliable. And Autism Speaks, I believe, is a reliable website. I also recommend going to the NIH. Um, they have patient pages that are really well designed. Um, they're kept up to date. Um, and I, I go there often. That's good to know, especially in an age where people aren't sure what to trust medically. Uh, so thanks for sharing that with us. And we plan to have Mary back to talk about another topic near and dear to her heart, and that is cerebral palsy. So be looking for that in the future. Mary King Kirchhoff, thank you for being with us on Dr. Doctor and educating us and our listeners about autism. Thank you. It's been fun. And we are back after that wonderful interview about autism. And as common, commonly known, this time of the show is when Tom digs up a wonderful trivia question. And you even found one about autism today, didn't you, Tom? Yep. I made it up from scratch, but it's going to be a fun one. The category autism in the rich and famous. So the question is, which of the five people I name has not publicly revealed that they have an autism spectrum disorder? Daryl Hannah, the actress. Anthony Hopkins, the actor, Tim Burton, the movie director, Jerry Seinfeld, the comedian, or Elon Musk, the entrepreneur known for Tesla, correct? That's so correct. the answer is I was unfair. They all have publicly revealed that they have an <laughs> autism spectrum disorder. I mean, I never would have dreamed that, you know, a comedian, but it just shows how how wrong my idea of what autism is was. Yeah, I think a lot of times we kind of, I mean, it's a its a survival trait to try and build up stereotypes, but often you can find that your stereotypes are wrong if you don't have a very big sample size, right? And I, True. I think, uh, I think autism is one of those things where we may know some people with autism and we assume that's how how it is for everybody but that's not really the case right it's a, a huge spectrum and some of those people i think uh elon musk on there i think he's the richest guy on earth and so awesome. it's uh, incredible yeah, 150 billion dollar net worth and he revealed this may of last year on saturday night live yeah that and, that's incredible and then jerry seinfeld saying that yeah he has a problem with thinking literally taking everything literally and i didn't think those people could be funny but he certainly disproves that so andrew out of the wealth of information what are your top three takeaways well there, there was a lot i i had a top six which i narrowed down <laughs> <laughs> but uh number one mary said the thing she wants everybody to take away with is that god has a plan and it is perfect and he has a plan for you and especially if autism is touching your life or someone you love there's there's a plan involved and so don't despair, I would say, is the biggest thing, especially I think when you get that diagnosis and you don't know what the future looks like, it can be scary, but it needn't be. God has a plan. Amen. And so number, number two, number two would be related to that. One of the ways I think God's plan works out is through people like Mary. And so when you have early intervention, she highlighted something that was was new to me was the idea that there are several different trajectories on which these kids can go. And with early intervention, she said, I think her words were that pretty much everybody gets better. Yes. And better can mean different things, but the idea is that if you can get involved into appropriate therapies early on, everyone is going to get better. So that's got to be the focus. That's part of my job with the milestones that we talked about, yes. trying to identify these kids early and get them to the help that they need. And then I, I would say number three was kind of the last point that she made, but I think is a salient one, is be careful on the internet. Oh, yes. Trying to look for good information. Um, autism is one of those things where you, you might look at three sources and get four different opinions. <laughs> and um, it's very dangerous. And so Mary had some very good resources, namely the one she, she mentioned was Autism Speaks. 
and then the NIH website as well. Those could be very trustworthy, but there's a lot of rabbit holes related to autism. So if you do find something that doesn't sound quite right, I'd encourage you to run it by your doctor and when in doubt, go go out and seek out care and testing for autism if appropriate. Yeah, the, the practical point for me was to slow things down when talking to patients with autism. They're, they're not fast processors and need time to process. And if that's the one thing I get out of this show, then I'm going to interact with people with that uh, much better than I have in the past. In fact, you said you recently treated a patient with that and found yourself doing that almost naturally. That That's right. I, I often call to mind a study that I read that an average patient unrelated to autism remembers about 10% of what you tell them. <laughs> yes. And uh, that being the case, anybody else, especially if there's any comorbidities, you want to slow it down and hopefully they'll get better care that way. Amen. Well, thank you listeners for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of our show with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And you can find all of our episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. For those who want to dive deeper into some of the topics, check our website for bonus links and information in our post for each episode. Just click latest at the top of the main page. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Andrew Mullally, and we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.